If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, if you do not have a Bible, there is one under uh, the chair in front of you. You will find our text on page 953 this morning, page 953. You know, today we live in an age of spirituality. That is to say, people may uh, not like religion all that that much. They may not go to church. Some may not even actually believe in God, but they would still consider themselves to be a spiritual person. They would consider themselves to have a spiritual life. And what this means is that now everything is kind of up for grabs, that uh, you can pretty much uh, plan out, just as you would a meal or a class schedule, uh, your approach to spirituality, and and everyone just says, that's fine, that's great. And this is probably, I think, most clearly seen in the celebrity culture uh, of our day. So, for instance, if you are Oprah, then being spiritual means holding a mishmash collection of New Age beliefs and positive thinking. Just about anything goes uh, in terms of of her belief. If you're Richard Gere, then being a spiritual person means following the teachings and the directions of the Dalai Lama. And if you would happen to be someone like John Travolta or Tom Cruise, then being spiritual means freeing your mind from negative emotions and experiences, seeking to achieve a state of clarity in mind and body as you follow the teachings of L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology. Now, you just need to understand that, I mean, even in in those three examples, there is so much diversity and, frankly, contradiction. And yet we all say, hey, whatever they want to do. Well, really? Well, you've got some things that are like, more like star reading that Oprah would be into and more things more like Star Trek that uh, Tom Cruise and, and the Scientologists would be into. Scientologists only believe there's a God. It's aliens who have given us all these things. It's, it's bizarre. And yet we say, oh, it's all spirituality. It's all spiritual. It's great. But what does the Bible say about all this? What does the Bible say is the measure of true spirituality? That's what we want to look at this morning. That's what we want to be thinking about because, frankly, I wouldn't trust myself to come up with ultimate truth about what is spiritual and what is not. And, and to be honest, no offense, I wouldn't trust you either because we're just people, right? I mean, uh, you know, look at Washington. People make mistakes. They don't, they don't have wisdom all the time. They make bad decisions. And so do we. We're all just people. Therefore, we need to go to a greater source of authority. And specifically here as Christians, we go to God's Word. This morning we're going to look at uh, a letter from the Apostle Paul to Christians at Corinth. And what he is going to tell them is that truly being spiritual means you have God's Spirit dwelling in your heart, in your life, empowering you, leading you, guiding you, and that you follow that direction and leadership. That's what it truly means to be spiritual. Too often, even though that is what the Bible teaches, Christians may not give that answer when it comes to the question of what is spiritual. Uh, again, we, we often look at the generic, the vague, even the pagan ideas about spirituality from our culture and we adopt them into our Christian belief system. And the result is our behavior, our lives, are not what they should be. And that situation today isn't new. That's the very situation that Paul is writing to, to these Christians in the city of Corinth. 
Corinth was a very cosmopolitan city. It was situated both as a Roman colony as well as a hub for sea traffic in between the Mediterranean and the Aegean seas. What that meant was it was the ancient equivalent of a modern city like New York City. He had all kinds of ideas and goods and cultural uh, trends moving in and through the city of Corinth. And basically what happened is it was all picked up and taken together and mishmashed together. And what that meant was you had all manner of ideas about religion and spirituality and gods. And in fact, that this role of worshiping idols and gods affected everything from government affairs to civic festivals to trade guilds, social clubs, and everyday life in general. And it's into all of this situation comes a frail, broken man named the Apostle Paul. And he says, I'm going to give you what the world considers foolish, but is the wisdom of God, and that is this, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for sins and rose on the third day. He says, this is the source. This is the, the, the true source of true spirituality. For 18 months, he labored with his friends Priscilla and Aquila to proclaim the gospel and establish God's church in the city of Corinth. And as he left to continue that work in other cities, uh, he began to hear things about the city of Corinth after he left. And so he wrote to them a letter, which we don't have, but we know he wrote because in chapter 5, the letter we're looking at this morning, he tells us about this other letter. And he says, I wrote to you about some of these things, but then he got a letter back. And what it showed is they were very confused. It was not long, not only in confusing that letter, but confusing the very things he had taught them for a year and a half. And so Paul writes them a second letter, the first one that we have called 1 Corinthians, and he's writing to help correct their thinking and their behavior. He is trying to help them see that their cultural thinking, that the paganism from which they have been saved out of, is still affecting their thinking, and so it's affecting how they live their lives. And what Paul wants to tell them is that kind of thinking, that kind of living, those wrong ideas about what you think is spiritual is completely incompatible with your life in Christ. You have, you have said you're a Christian. You have said that you trust in Christ to be your Savior. And if that's true, then you've got to have a different lifestyle than the one that you have. Because that's not how Christians live. That's not how people who have the Spirit of Christ are supposed to live. This is, this is what Paul is intending to accomplish as he's writing. And he really brings together all of the major themes that he wants to talk about in this way in chapter 3. And so that's what we want to look at this morning. Get a, kind of get a snapshot of the whole letter uh, through this one text in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I will begin reading if you want to follow along at verse 1. Paul says, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. And while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, another one says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he, and, and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wage according to his labor. For we are all God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building." 
according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each take care, however, how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. This is the word of God to us this morning. Here, Paul again hits all the major themes that he wants to address in this book. And what we want to see this morning is basically four things that should characterize God's church as a spiritual people. We can talk about being spiritual. We can talk about spirituality. But Paul here gives us four characteristics that will mark our lives together as God's people if we truly have His Spirit and we are truly spiritual people. Four things that should be evident. The first one is this. There should be a growing maturity. There should be a growing maturity. In verses 1 through 4, Paul identifies really the overall problem with much of the Corinthians. They just aren't growing in their walk with Christ. They aren't maturing in their faith. Just the opposite. They're not even acting like Christians. Paul says, I I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed fed you with milk, not solid food. That is to say, basic teachings. And even now, you're not ready for more advanced things. You still can only can take the basics. You're not ready for it. You are still of the flesh. What is the evidence of their immaturity? Paul says, there is jealousy and strife among you. You're not of the flesh. You're acting like mere humans. One of the biggest problems in Corinth was division in the church. Um, if, there was a, if there was a line that you could draw to divide people, the Corinthians embraced it. If it was economic lines, the rich and the poor, if it was social lines, uh, someone from this ethnic group and someone from a different ethnic group, if it was theological beliefs, what was truly spiritual and what isn't, you name it, they were divided across there with all kinds of factions, all at each other's throats and, and thinking we're superior and you're not. And Paul writes all, into all this stuff and he says, basically, what's the matter with you people? That's not what people of the Spirit look like. You think you're spiritual, you think you're, you're growing and mature, but you're not. This is your infants. Worse than that, you're acting like people who don't even know God. The results of all, of all the contentions here, he only touches on things like jealousy over gifts and positions of authority, strife over differences and opinions and lifestyle. In all of this, they lack the unity, Paul will argue over and over again in this letter. The kind of the unity and oneness that should mark God's people. Thus Paul says again, I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Now one of the things that if you have been around church for a while, you may know that these verses are uh, central uh, to some who, who believe that there are two kinds of Christians, mature Christians 
and carnal Christians. That is, those who are spiritual and those who live according to the flesh. And so in their mind, it's possible to be saved, to be a Christian, but to live completely like the world. So much so that if you were to put their life against someone from the world's life, there would be able to be absolutely no discernible difference. They'd still be saved, but they wouldn't be in any way mature. They would be what's called a carnal Christian. It's possible to live without any evidence whatsoever in their lives. And it's only if they decide to press on and actually become a disciple of Jesus Christ, a spiritually minded person, obedient to the Lord, that they would then be move from being a carnal Christian to a spiritual or a mature Christian. Thus, those that would say this uh, believe that Paul basically says here, there are three kinds of people in the world. There are unbelievers, those that don't know God. There are believers who are carnal and unholy. Then there are believers who are spiritual and mature. And um, this view was first popularized in the Schofield Reference Bible that came out in the early 1900s. I can even remember when I was going to church, seeing that word Schofield on so many Bibles and thinking, what in the world's a Schofield? Well, it's a person's name. It's a Bible scholar who put together these notes for this study Bible. But, but that idea was taken up and made even more popular by Bill Bright and a lot of his uh, tracks and literature. The problem with all of that is that's the very opposite thing Paul is trying to say here. They, they, they don't get it. Paul says there's only two kinds of people in the world. Those that have the Spirit and are saved and those that don't have the Spirit and are not saved. Those that have put their faith in Christ and those that haven't. There, there's no middle ground there. You're either of the Spirit, a spiritual person who should act like it, or you're nothing. You're a mere person without God's Spirit in the flesh, destined for hell justly because of your sins. Paul makes that very clear in another letter, uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 4. But even here in Corinthians, back in chapter 2, he says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But the spiritual person judges all things. In other words, he understands all things. What is Paul saying? He says there's a kind of natural person, you're born, you you live your life, but you don't have the Spirit of God. You've never trusted in Christ, and so you're not a Christian. You're not one of God's people. And he says, you don't understand spiritual things. But then there are those who do have the Spirit of God. Yes, you were born a sinner, but now God has forgiven you and given you His Spirit, and now you're considered a spiritual, capital S, person. You've been redeemed. You've been saved. You've had your sins forgiven. You are one of God's people, and now you can understand spiritual things because you have God's Spirit. And that's it. One or the other, which camp are you in? Where do you find your life? That's what Paul is saying here. He says there aren't three different kinds of people, there are two. And he's telling them this specific thing because of their immaturity, because of their disunity, because of their fighting. They're acting like people who are lost. They're acting like people who are not even Christians. And that's why Paul says it's so unthinkable. That's why when you go through this letter, there's some, you know, Paul roughs them up a little bit. He gives them a kind of spiritual ear boxing. He says, now come on, guys, let's get this thing together. You're acting like the pagans, and that can't be because I know you received the Spirit of God. I know you trusted in, for, in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. I know you are God's people, therefore you must act like it. This is why he says in verse 4, he says, are you not being merely human. Therefore, what Paul is saying is this, what should characterize the people of God, the people who are really spiritual, that have God's Spirit, is a growing maturity. 
that's an indicator that you know you're really one of God's people. You look back to the last six months, the last year, and you say, what was I thinking about? What was I loving? What was I into back then? And now how does that compare to where I am now? Has there been change? Has there been growth? Do I love the Lord a little bit more now than what I did a year ago? Have I, have I gotten over some sins that I was still into a year ago? Am I progressing in my walk with God? That's the mark of a true Christian. Is someone who is continually growing in maturity. But more than that, he says spiritual people not only have a growing maturity, they also display a humble service. They also display a humble service. Another problem the Corinthians had was something of a hero worship when it came to its teachers. You see, that the culture of the city was such that they had these, these people who studied rhetoric, which is a fancy word for speech. Okay, you guys take speech class, basically you, you, you were taught something of rhetoric. But in their day, they had people who were professionals at it. And all they did was go around uh, getting paid to give talks with witty little observations about life and advice on how to, how to advance in society. So in contemporary terms, you would basically have someone that would be a mix of Dr. Phil and Jerry Seinfeld with maybe a little Plato and Rush Limbaugh mixed in there, okay? That, 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 does that give a pretty bizarre picture? But that's what, that's what they had going in Corinth. And people would, would love these people. And they would say, oh, you know, uh, Hippolytus is coming back through. we got to go see him tonight at the, th at the theater. So they would go in and they would drop their coins and they would sit there with their fruit or their peanuts or whatever they had. And they would just, they would just laugh and think, oh, yeah, that's some good idea. That's some, some good thoughts. And they began to, to follow these people and they would, they would have arguments. No, no, no. This guy, is he's much more on the ball than this other guy. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. I mean, all he's talking about is, you know, is how to wash your dog. We don't even have a dog. This guy tells you how to get rich. This is the guy I want to go listen to. Well, all of that cultural uh, hero worship transfers into the church. So you've got some people who are saying, well, this is the best preacher we've got. Other people say, no, 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 no. This other preacher, this is the best preacher that we've got. And so Paul will, will, will describe this in chapter 1. And he says, some of you are going around saying, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas. Or some were really spiritual, and they said, oh, yeah, well, I follow Christ. And Paul says, Paul says that's crazy. That, that, that's not the way you view ministry. And let's be honest, not much has changed in 2,000 years, has it? I mean, we pick our favorite preacher and we like latch onto them in hero worship, don't we? We go around more or less, uh, not as crassly, we don't divide over it. We still go around saying things like, well, I follow Piper. Well, I follow Sproul. Well, I follow Stanley. I follow Heggie. I follow Botkin. Nah, I made that last bit up. Nobody says that. No, no, nobody says that. You know, fill in whatever preacher you like. The, quite, but the point is we've got to be careful we don't put people on pedestals that we don't make too much of them. Why? Because Paul tells us. He says, they're nothing special. What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Why are they special, he says. Look at what he says, verse 5. They are just servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. He says, those teachers have an assigned role by God. And in fulfilling that role, they're simply serving God. Furthermore, it's God who does all the heavy lifting. He says in verses 6-7, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. I, I, you know, let's just be honest and say, you, you know, I know some of you think I golf six days a week and just come up here and that's it, it's done. Uh, it doesn't work like that. 
ministry and working with people and preaching, it is, it's hard work. It's uh, joyous work sometimes. Sometimes it's, frankly, depressing work. And you're just thinking, why am I even doing this? And you just want to chuck it all and go be a mailman or something, you know. Uh, just walk around and look at the flowers all day. But, but here's the reality, and that is this. You should never have too high of a view of us, nor should you have too low of a view of us. What you should simply acknowledge is all of us have been given an assignment by God. And the only indicator of whether or not we're any good is, are we faithful in what we're doing now? So you, so you can't look at one pastor and, and, and compare him to another pastor and what's going on in their churches and, have, and say, oh, look, we should go with this guy because that church is bigger. Well, that's fine, but we're going to talk about it in a few minutes. How did the church get bigger? Is the guy actually being faithful to God? Or is he doing all kind of monkey shines and circus tricks to get people to show up? Okay? You see, at the end of the day, Paul says, look, it doesn't matter about Paul, it doesn't matter about Apollos, it doesn't matter about this guy. What matters is... These people are serving the Lord, doing what He has called them to do. And ultimately, what should that produce in us? It's humility. It's humility. Even as, a, as one who gets up and speaks every single week, a couple times a week, look, you need to understand, if you benefit at all from what comes out from behind this pulpit, it's because God is the one who has done it. It's because you have come ready to hear from him and he is actually, he's actually deigned to, to come down and speak through the folly of this thing called preaching that comes out of my mouth. He is the one who is giving the growth. I, I'm working hard tilling the ground. I'm working watering it. But when the plant springs up, when righteousness erupts in your soul, it is because God is the one who has done the work. He is the one who has given the growth. Therefore, we can do nothing but be humble in our service to God. And that's not just preachers and speakers though, is it? Because ultimately we are to be the example for everyone. All of you in some sense are involved in ministry to God and it's the same thing. If you have any success in it at all, if God accomplishes anything through you, you have to be humble because He is the one doing it. We, we, we can't look and say, well, you know, uh, that guy teaches Sunday school, so he's got to be better than that lady who just cleans the bathrooms. If God's called that lady to clean the bathrooms and she does it to the glory of God, then she's a servant of God and she will get her reward one day. Just because someone is out front, just because someone is popular, just someone, because someone looks successful, doesn't mean they're actually serving the Lord the way they should. And so Paul is saying, look, whether it's this hero worship thing or even by application you sitting in the pews, what we are called to do, an indicator of whether or not we are truly spiritual peoples that we will serve God and we will do it not with pride, not seeking adulation, but humbly knowing we are simply serving the Lord. Specifically, as we seek to serve the Lord, Paul also tells us that the third, the third mark of true spirituality is that we will be faithful in that service. We will display faithful ministry. Faithful ministry. Paul says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Now, what's Paul talking about? Well, he's not talking about actually building a physical building. He's talking about building the church. Later, he'll talk about the foundation in verse 11 being Christ. Paul came to Corinth preaching the gospel, and the result was God's church was established. And he's using this building metaphor to describe the ministry of doing that. Paul says he's like a master builder in his own day. Back then, um, used to have different, more or less different work crews that would build one building. 
Uh, it may take decades to build a really nice building. You would have someone, the, the most important person, the master builder or the wise builder, some translations have, is the one who would lay the foundation. They would come in and they would do all the geometry and they would level the thing out and they would lay that foundation perfect. Because if we didn't have that, it didn't matter what came after. The whole building was going to fall, fall to bits. So this person would come in and they would, they would say, okay, now you're ready to build, and they'd be off. Their work's done. And someone else then begins building level by level, wall by wall, pillar by pillar, whatever it is, the rest of the structure. And Paul says, that's what happened. He says, I came in and for, 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 for 18 months I laid this foundation. For 18 months, I preached Christ and Him crucified. I set the foundation plate and someone else has come and they are now continuing to build up the Corinthian church. He's moved on and he's entrusted the continued construction of the people of God to other church leaders. Nevertheless, he says to them, you've got to be careful how you build. Even today, are you going to build your house with rotted wood? I hope not. If so, I don't want to come to your house a couple of years in the wintertime. And the roof gets heavy with snow, and you're not going to have it much longer. You, you don't build with bad materials, right? You want the best you can afford. You, you want the best that you can put into that thing because it means the building is going to be secure. Listen to what Paul says in verse 10. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, that is the foundation he's laid. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire." Just like there's two kinds of people in the world, Paul says there's only two kinds of materials in the world upon which we use to build ministry. One's going to stand the test of time and the other's going to be shown to be useless. Specifically, on that day is the day of judgment. He says you can have someone who is saved, their salvation is secure, but the question is, what are they offering to God in terms of ministry to Him? What are they doing in order to build up His church? And Paul pictures this, this great furnace that will be used to purify metals. And he says, if you put the good stuff in, it's going to come back out. It's going to be, it's going to be shown to be the real deal and valuable. He says, but you try and put something, uh, you know, something cheap in there or something that's fake, what's going to happen? Boom. It's gone. It's burned up. There's nothing left. And so he's saying, what are you building with? He says, I laid the perfect foundation. What are you building on top of it, though? Now, what, what he's getting at here is... is is the, 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 the way in which we go about building up the church. Although even really before we even get to that, what does he say? He talks about laying another foundation stone. He says you can't. What is he talking about there? Well, it's talking about simply this, and that is you cannot build a church on anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. The, the, the gospel again says that the divine perfect Son of God took on flesh. He lived among humanity. He stood in their place under God's judgment on the cross, dying for their sins and rising again, that they might be forgiven of their sins and saved. There's this great story of uh, C.S. Lewis, probably best known for writing the Chronicles of Narnia. He was a, a, a teacher at Oxford, I believe. And he, uh, at one time, all these other professors were having this debate. It was going on for hours about, about, was there anything unique in the religion of Christianity? 
And they're going, they've got scraps of notes, and they've got books, and, and, and uh, uh, C.S. Lewis comes uh, w- walking by, and he pokes his head at it. He's like, what's all the fuss? And they say, we're trying to figure out, is there anything unique about Christianity from all the world religions? And he goes, that's easy. It's grace. That's grace. What did he mean? He meant this. Every other religion says, you earn salvation. You, you give enough money to the church. You read our books enough. You do enough good deeds, you give enough away to charity, and then God forgives you and saves you. And Christianity says, no, no, no. Christ saves you. He's paid the penalty for your sins. And when you trust Him, it's done. God's forgiven you. All that extra stuff, all that good work stuff, that flows out of the grace, the undeserved love of God that He has shown us in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, if you, don't, don't try and lay any other foundation. It starts with Christ and it only goes up from there. But, but what are you putting on that foundation? The question is, why are you serving the Lord? That's the question ultimately that he's asking. Maybe you are serving the Lord and building up his church because you desire to be seen as great. Maybe you show up for work days because you want that pat on the back and people to think you're a really great guy. Maybe it's selfish reasons. Maybe you're involved so you can make sure things turn out best for you and your family. You know, I hate to say, but several years ago I heard someone say, and don't look around because they're not here anymore, but I I heard them say, you know, the only reason why I serve on the finance committee is so I get to decide how the church spends its money. Yeah, that's a real great attitude. No, it's straw, wood, hay, and stubble. It's going to be burned up. On the day of judgments before Christ. That's not the reason you serve on a finance committee. You serve it to be loving towards the church and help manage the finances so we get spent in a way that's honoring to God. You see the difference there? And likewise, Paul is saying you've got to be careful how you build. Your labor could be flawed for all kinds of reasons, and you may snowball everybody else because you may think you're looking great, but the day of the Lord is coming, and He will test all things, and there's no hiding from Him. One person whose music I enjoy listening to is uh, Frederick Chopin, and he was a famous pianist and composer. And apparently I read on one occasion he was giving a concert, and uh, just for the average person sitting in, uh, you know, in the theater listening to him, it just sounded great. And they just thought, this is wonderful. Uh, it just seemed perfect. And they stood up and gave him this massive standing ovation at the end. But one guy, one guy was sitting down, some old guy. And I'm sure people are thinking, like, what's his problem? Well, it wasn't that it was a problem. It was that he was Chopin's teacher, Verde. And though everybody else thought it sounded great, he picked up every single technical flaw and mistake Chopin made in his concert performance. And in his mind, Chopin didn't deserve the same ovation. Now, what's my point in saying that? My point is saying this. Every Sunday, someone who pats me on the back and says, or shakes my hand and says, good good sermon. But you know what? Only in the last day are we going to know if that was a good sermon or not. It's only on the last day when Christ himself will reveal all motives, when he will test everything metaphorically by fire to purify it and say, why did you do that? What material were you using to build up my church on that day? Is it worth something or is it garbage with no lasting eternal substance? Loved ones, it's not just those that would lead and teach. It's all of us who are seeking to build up the church of Christ. All of us will have our labors tested. And the question is, at the end of the day, when Revelation says that we will all cast our crowns back to Christ, 
Do you want to have something to give your king and your savior? Or do you want to just stand there with the smell of smoke on your clothes? Saying, well, at least I'm here. I don't want to do that. I want to be able to, to heap lavish treasure back to Christ and thankfulness for what He has done in dying for my sins and being my Savior. The last thing that we see in all of these things is we're seeking to, ha- to display growing maturity, biblical, or excuse me, humble service, faithful ministry. There sh- in all of this, there should be an evident holiness, an evident holiness. Paul is using this metaphor of a building uh, did, you, did you catch what he's describing here? On one level, certainly he's, it's the church. But what other Bible that has a foundation laid is said to be built with gold, silver, and precious stones? Well, if you know your Bible, you know it's the temple in the Old Testament. He's hinting at something there, and now he makes the analogy clear. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells within you? You know, sometimes we call buildings like this a temple, or we call it the house of God. But frankly, that's just wrong. This is not the house of God. This, you know, we could tear this thing down tomorrow, and it's not going to make a hill of beans difference to anything. Because God says now in this new covenant, His building, His temple is His people. The place where He, he dwells in and manifests His presence is in His people, not any physical structure. And so Paul says, even though it's important us as individuals who are the temple of the Holy Spirit, chapter 6 of this letter, here he says, collectively together, as we gather corporately as the people of God, we are also the temple of God. God is dwelling in our midst, and therefore, because He is holy, His Spirit is holy, so His temple is supposed to be holy. What does that mean? That the holiness means set apart from sin. And that means not just individually in our lives, but how we interact together, how we live together, how we serve together, how we worship together. It should be marked by holiness. And this is a huge problem in Corinth. Sexual immorality was all over the place. Nobody thought anything about it. In fact, some people who had crazy ideas about how to separate your body from your spirit thought it was great that they could sin all this much with their body and not taint their spirit. And it was just, I mean, it was a... You know, someone said it's like there's videos, Christians gone wild, you know. And, uh, and it was just, it was a crazy, but it was not a place marked by holiness. But more than just individuals, it was also not marked by holiness when they came together. In just a little while, we're going to be taking the Lord's Supper and we're reminded of Paul's words to the Corinthians. He says this in chapter 11, I do not commend you because when you come together at the table, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Paul says when you come together to worship God at the Lord's table, it's bad. It's committed by God, but it's bad when you do it because you are so sinful. Can you imagine that? I mean, imagine me one day, and we've got the, we've got the bread and we've got the cup here, and I just say, you know what? You guys are so horrible. We, we can't even take this today. We've got to just repent. I mean, you'd be like, what? You know, I mean, you just you wouldn't be like, what in the world? You know? And that's what Paul says here. What are they doing? He says in verse 18, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. Problem number one, divisions. I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you must be recognized. Problem number two, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. In other words, it looks like the Lord's Supper, but if it's not done in a way that's pleasing to Him, then don't call it that. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. 
What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. He says, and see, you know, this is the reason why when you first get the cup and the bread, you don't just take it. Paul says, we wait for one another because we love one another and we want to do it together. The reason why we have a potluck and we don't just bring our own things, which the Corinthians were doing for meals, is because you've got some people who are poor and they can't afford as much. And you've got other people who are bringing in this huge feast and they're sitting there with their friends and they're just laughing it up, getting completely uh, poleaxed drunk. And these other people over here and they got a little scrap of bread. And Paul says, well, what are you thinking? And ultimately, all of that identifies the major sin in Corinth, and that is there's no love. There is no love. You need to understand among God's people, love is not an optional extra. It's not like the really good sound system or the spoiler in the back. It's essential. It's a defining element in God's holy people. Paul says you're so wrapped up in spiritual gifts and making a show of ministry and making people think well of you, you don't even love each other. Paul says, amongst all these amazing skills of speaking, he says, if I have the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have and even offer up my body to be burned, but not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Now, I know that, that some people, maybe even you here, you know, that, that little section about what, what is love that he has in those few verses. Some of you, um, you know, you had that read at your wedding when you took your vows. Here's what love is. And it was like, oh, this is what we want to do, you know. You know, uh, never be rude and never unkind. And then you hit anniversary one, right? And you realize we're all sinful, Okay. But you understand, there's nobody sitting at Corinth going, oh, honey, we, you know, we're going to get married next month. We, we should have them read that part of Paul's letter. No. Paul is saying, that's not you. He's saying, you guys are infants. You're no better than kids. Grow up. Love each other. That's the mark of true spirituality, is that you are concerned more for others than for yourself. He is saying all of this to rebuke them not to build them up and give them warm fuzzies. He says, you're selfish, you're pouting, you have no love for one another. You're all wrapped up in these spiritual gifts, but it's all for nothing if you don't care about each other. Tongues and prophecies, all that stuff is fine, it's from God, but it's meaningless if you don't have love. Love for one another, selfless, undeserving, unconditional love is the greatest display of God's power among His people. A few weeks ago I received a suggested reading list for pastoral ministry from another person in ministry. And as I look down the list, I'm a, um, you know, a little bit of a book lover. Some of, you that, <laughs> some of you that know me may chuckle at that. And I thought, you know, what have I read? What is he going to suggest? And I looked down here. And frankly, I was dismayed because he said, here's what I've read. I've highlighted the, the, the books that I think would be good for you to read. 
and all but one were written by CEOs of companies and other people in business. Now, don't get me wrong. They got some good things to say. They probably know some things about people management. But, but I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, is that really what we want to major on? Do we really need to look to a sinful culture driven by, frankly, greed? I don't care how well the business is run, how, how nice the people are. They're in business for profit. And is that the kind of culture we want to bring in and use to, to shape how we do ministry in church life? I don't want to overstate things here. I don't think Paul would have been real happy to get that email. I think he would have said, you know, you're just like the Corinthians. You think the culture that you got saved out of, the culture that you still live in, is the best thing since sliced bread. And you, but the problem is you can't see. It's horrible. It's wrong. It's sinful. And it's destroying your soul. It's destroying your testimony. It's destroying your church. The indicator of success is not out in the world. The indicator of success is what God says about success. The indicator of spirituality is not what famous people think or do or believe. It is what God says in His Word and He says it is trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and receiving His Spirit and living in such a way it is clear that God is your God, that Christ is your King, and that you are a holy, humble servant for Him. May that be true of us at this church now and forevermore. Father, we are Thankful for your word which gives us direction. We are thankful, dear Father, for, for knowing that as your people we have your spirit. God, help us not be like the Corinthians. God, help us to treasure you and what you would have for us in our lives. God, help us to see that though it may be folly to the world, your word, your truth, even the gospel is the very wisdom of God, eternal wisdom that you have saw fit in your grace and mercy to give to us through your word. God, may we treasure it above all things, knowing you are the source of real spirituality. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.